Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. We have a lot to get into today because it's the first episode of 2020. Is it? It's it's the first episode we're recording, but we recorded one before, or we released no, one. No, no. We released one. Um, The week of Christmas. On? Yeah, it was the week of Christmas. That was it. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, so this is our first episode of the new year. But before we get into business, I think you have news to share. Nope. I think you do. <laughs> I'm getting married. <laughs> They all know by now, but yeah. Only if they follow our social media, which they should be, but... <laughs> so yes, Reppy is engaged. It's very exciting. I don't it know what is. I'm going to do, but... Why? There's a lot of planning and... Yeah, there is. <laughs> I don't want to do it, but... <laughs> really? It'll be fun. Like, I do, but I have no money, so it's hard to plan when you have no money, yeah maybe we could do like a uh like you know sometimes at the bridal shower you can instead of like gifts you ask for just money for the wedding yeah i mean i think i'm just gonna use my school money which should be like in total around six thousand dollars it's just yeah they come every like three months in separate checks so like i'll yeah. be getting a check in february so i'll use that to like get the venue and get invitations and then I found a lot of places where it's like you just have to put a small deposit down and then yeah you can like pay as you go or everything's just due 30 days before the wedding. So I was like, mm-hmm. I guess I can do that. So it's all reserved. And then every time I get a check, I'm just going to pay it off. That's a good way to play it. Have you found venues you like? Yeah, I'm I'm like a hundred, almost 100 percent sure. As long as they have a date we like, which I hope they do. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to do the Ripa Villa Plantation in Springfield, okay. Tennessee. Uh huh. Which I hate that it's a plantation, but yeah. Other than that, but it's hard in the South. Almost every gorgeous place is a plantation, is a plantation. Well, and it's in Spring Hill, which is like right near you. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like forty minutes from where we are, south of here. So the reason I knew about it is because we drove by one day. I forget. I think we were just going to his dad's house because you have to drive by it to get to his dad's house. Jake's, mm-hmm. but it had to be around Halloween because there was a big sign that said, we do ghost tours. Yes. And I was like, that yes. place is haunted? And Jake was like, <laughs> oh yeah, that place is really haunted. Super haunted, And then yeah. I was like, well, it's gorgeous because it's just like an old house on like a bunch of land. And mm-hmm. so when I was thinking of wedding places, I was like, what is that weird place we passed by? And it's pretty cheap. So if I do it the first Saturday in December, it's $1,400. That's amazing because so, it's off peak. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I'm hoping for. And I wanted to do the last Saturday in November. So I'm fine pushing in another week if it gets me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I kind of like the colder weather, but down here it'll still be like 60 during the day. Yeah. I have such a low number of people coming that we can actually do like they have it. All their buildings make a brick like courtyard and so all the chairs and tables come with it and you sit in this beautiful brick courtyard and she was like if you just put heaters in every corner because it's so closed in it yeah really, like heats up the place well and so. months people are in there it'll heat it up yeah so she was like it's really not ever really cold unless there's some crazy like yeah storm or something you know unless it's really mm-hmm. yeah that's awesome so yeah i think i'm gonna do that it'll be like twelve hundred dollars and then the rest of it's due like a month before the venue like yeah before, before the actually wedding and then yeah. and then the $500 deposit she just gives you back it's just she was like it's such an old place if you break something we want to know that we have obviously money yeah 
you know, because there's like lights yeah. and stuff. And she was like, normally we let people put up decorations. So the deposit is just in case you guys like trash our place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. Especially because it's a historic site or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Not for the right reasons, but. <laughs> no. Unfortunately, I really yes. tried all the places that were just like not historic like not plantations or anything mm-hmm. well for one every almost everything in the south is on land that it was a plantation things have happened but yeah. also they're always like eight thousand dollars and your girl doesn't have eight thousand dollars so <laughs> no but <laughs> yeah you know. we need more patrons if we want oh. to get to that yeah. um speaking of which i need to shout out some patrons yay first up oh as always janae slash bacon bits and mm-hmm. she is or she and bacon bits are bacon bits kitty on instagram and twitter now i believe that christmas card is so cute it's so cute oh my gosh i loved the bacon bits christmas card <sighs> Jake is one of them. Ugh, he give a <laughs> shout out. No shout outs for him. No shout out for Jake. Chelsea, Rachel, Samantha, Sydney, and Violet is our newest one. Oh. Thank you all so much. And I also wanted to quickly read an email we got. Okay. From Sydney, who has been a longtime supporter of the show. And the the subject line of the email is Austin scarred me. Haha. So it says, hey, ladies, as always, love the show and all the other necessary pleasantries. In episode 81, Austin told us about the Harlem Shake video by Blippi. Oh, no. (laughs) While it would usually just be funny, it ruined me. I nanny two boys who love Blippi. I've been watching him and listening to this music for almost a year. And now whenever it comes on, all I can think about is the Harlem Shake shitting video. Thank you for that. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, I hope you ladies had a great holiday season and congrats to Rappi on the engagement. <laughs> oh, thanks. Wait, he does other stuff? I thought it was just like... No, so he used to be a um, like a shock YouTuber, but now he is a full-on kids YouTuber. Oh my god. Yes, and all he does is like kids videos with songs and like lots of colors and shit like that. That's insane. Yeah. That's crazy. So I just love that that came back around. Yeah. <laughs> That would scar me too. Oh my yeah, God. you're. See, the kids you nannied were never old enough for that kind of shit. Yeah, well, so, I mean, when I nannied Gray, he was. Yeah, but I feel like he was too old for it. Yeah, this he's is like. Probably, oh yeah, he was probably too old, and the other kids were probably too young. Too young, yeah. That's yeah, what I think you missed that. Yeah, yeah. You missed that critical blippy age. <laughs> <laughs> so today. Oh, I do have to say though. This. Is oh yeah, just, absolutely. Uh, anecdote that doesn't really matter but last night i was babysitting and i was eating half of a cookie because i i've lost 10 pounds so i was like you get the cookie so so <laughs> i ordered myself dumplings but i was eating half of this cookie that was at their house and i was like walking up to the table and their little three-year-old was like what are you eating and i was like <laughs> half a cookie and she goes a cookie <laughs> She's like, I want half of a cookie. She's like, well, you have that other half there. Yeah, (laughs) but it was so funny. She got so excited for it. Yeah. Oh my god, kids are so fucking weird. I love it. Pretty great. Yeah, I mean, when they're not yours, they're amazing. Yeah, yeah, because I got to leave that night. So. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't have to stay in that moment. (laughs) Yeah, when you get to hand them off. Yeah. So I go first this week. And for our first episode of this new decade, we are kicking it off with revenge killings. Okay, this was like the hardest thing for me to research. Really? It's so hard to find a good one. And so like I found one. It's a little short, but it's good. So I was like, that's okay. Yours is really good, but a lot like when you research revenge killings, a lot of it's like a dick who kills his ex-girlfriend and it's like well that's not really a revenge killing he's just an asshole like yeah it has to be like you hurt me so now i'm gonna so go now fuck i'm gonna you. hurt you um it's just, it was very really i feel like there are a lot but it's hard to like look for them if you put in revenge killings there's not a lot like nothing comes up so i was like i was typing in things i was like employee kills boss and then there was like a few but not really and some of them were just like literally like people went insane like there wasn't there wasn't a moment where you're like ah this is why he's doing it you know like yeah. i couldn't find that real good one you know mm-hmm, but yeah. then i found i found a pretty good one 
and it has okay. some interesting details but i'm excited to hear about it <laughs> um but first we're gonna get into i don't know what to call this one like do we call it the name of the victim quote unquote or the well, murderer i feel like so i know i know this case and i've always heard of it referred to as his last name the the gary plowshay case oh wait i thought you were doing you texted me and said you were doing a different case. No, I'm doing Gary Plouchet. <gasps> oh, no. Did we do the same case? No, I didn't. But I okay. would have done the case I thought you were doing if you were doing... <clears throat> I'm finding the text right now. No, because I remember telling you because you were here on the air mattress. And I told you, I'm doing Gary Plouchet. So anything with a French name, <laughs> don't do. Yeah, but then I thought I asked you and you texted me. I don't know who I was talking to, <laughs> but I don't see the text now. So maybe I dreamed it. You might have. It was like right before you were going to sleep. Yeah, but I thought I texted you. No, I don't think you asked I me. What... Well, huh. so what What? What case did you think I was doing? I thought you were doing the Christopher Dorner one. No, we. so we had talked about that and we were kind of like, yeah, we both want to see what it's like. And I said, well, you could do it then. But we I could... thought you were doing it. I no. would have done that one. Oh, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, listen, another time. There will always be opportunities. Yeah, that's true. So I'm going to be telling you about Leon Gary Plouchet, who was born on November 10th, 1945 in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. <laughs> <laughs> which yeah, which is the dumbest name for a city ever because it means red stick. Yeah, so it's the red stick. It's, <laughs> this is a red stick. You know how everyone else refers to it as the red stick city. Yeah, you know, it's a law. You have to carry around a red stick whenever you're in city <laughs> limits. So we don't know a lot about his like childhood or teen years. But when he was in his mid-20s, he married a woman named June and they had four children together. So first was Leon Gary Jr., then came Joseph or Jody, then Jeffrey, and finally Sissy. Oh, Sissy. Sissy, which I don't know if that's her real name or that's just her nickname, but (laughs) that's what we know. So Gary had lived in Baton Rouge all his life, and many of his friends and acquaintances still live there. At that time, it was a kind of like a smallish city, so people knew each other. And though it's the capital of Louisiana, it still had that small town feel in the 1970s. Most people living in the city were working class, like Gary and June. Gary worked full time and did all he could to provide for his family of six. He was known as a it's yeah, a lot it's, of family. <laughs> it's a lot of people. He was known as a devoted father, and he was well liked in the area. Jody, the second eldest Plouchet child, was involved in several sports. He participated in Little League, which Gary coached, as well as several Wait, other... sorry. Jody's a boy. Yes. Um, okay. His name is Joseph, but his nickname's Jody. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Like so Foster. Yes. <laughs> so um, his father coached his Little League, which was nice. And he was also involved in several other recreational organizations. When Jody was 10... Flyers for a local karate class were distributed to the students at his school. Jody threw his in the trash, but his little brother took his flyer home. His mother wanted Jody's little brother, Jeff, to get involved in an after-school activity like his older brothers and saw the class as an opportunity for her sons to participate in something together. Aww. Yeah, she signed all three boys up, but after the first class, the instructor ran off with the tuition money. The company that oversaw the classes was able to work out a deal with another local martial arts instructor to honor the remaining classes that had been paid for. So this is how Jody and his two brothers began taking martial arts classes with 24-year-old Jeff Doucette. Doucette was really well-liked by his students and had a reputation as an engaging and caring martial arts instructor. He actually lived in the back room of the martial arts school during this time period and became involved in multiple parts of his students' lives. Okay, I don't love that he lives in the back. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's definitely there a red flag. There should be a bed 
anywhere the at the martial arts studio. And I'm sure it was just a mattress. Yeah, so. on the floor, one pillow, no pillowcase. Exactly. You know how he lives. Multiple stains. <laughs> um, so he would offer to drive his students home from school, watch them when their parents were busy, and took on sort of like an older brother role in a lot of their lives. Because he was single, he wasn't doing anything, just living in the karate studio. Yeah, so, you living know. in the back, yep. Yeah, his whole life is in the karate studio. Yeah. It's He's really totally, sad. Like, going crazy. He's like, I need to get out of this fucking studio. Yeah. Let me drive you home from work. Exactly. It takes a lot to uh, want to be in a car with a bunch of kids. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah. When Jody started taking lessons, Doucette showed a special interest in him. Oh, he no. often, yeah, he often invited students to events outside of class. He ran a competition team and would take the kids to a movie the night before matches. Jody and his brothers were invited to one such outing, and their mother, who was generally suspicious, called her brother, yes, which is a good thing, called her brother who worked at the sheriff's office to run a background check on Doucette. She is, like, on this. Yeah, I would have, too. Also, I mean, look, I'm going to be that parent that runs background checks on everyone. (laughs) Yeah, you just need... If you're their like the local cops like i need to know who's around my child who's in touching distance of my child yes touching distance is is the threshold yeah so june's brother found a couple of speeding tickets but no other blemishes on his criminal record so june allowed the boys to go where is he He... going in such a hurry (laughs) yeah why is he speeding all the time (laughs) um the Plouchet boys were invited to their cousin's birthday party that same night. And since the movie was right next to the Chuck E. Cheese where the party was being held, yeah. Doucette offered to walk the boys over after the movie. Have you seen that theory online that Chuck E. Cheese takes pieces of pizza? Yes, and I have. Make a whole pizza. It's yes. my favorite. Oh there's my like, God. There's like half hour long videos. About it. Well, listen, they're very separated when they come out. What I think it is, is when someone orders two pizza, like two pieces or whatever, you know, they'd probably just put all the extra together. I can't imagine they go to tables and take the leftover pizza from those tables and And put put them together. together. They probably just let the employees eat those. Yeah, right? I mean, you would get... You gained so much weight working there. Yeah, that's that what the Italian the place I used to work at did. They were like, you can eat whatever's left over. And I just yeah. remember, like, pizza's, like, fine, whatever, bread's fine. But some people would, like, finish people's pastas. And I was like, Ew. that seems a little too much. Yeah, nothing that's been, like, generally touched. Yeah, you know? like, a lot of mouth liquid has gone into that. Because it's yeah. spooning and spooning and spooning. And... Yeah, all that stuff. Do you know what the E in Chuck E. Cheese stands for? Um, no. E, this is disgusting. <laughs> no. So, um, it's the mouse's name. So it's his middle initial. So oh, his name. Oh, I it's... thought you meant like the E's and like Chuck no. E's. No. <laughs> yeah. So his full name is Charles Entertainment Cheese. Yeah. He's yeah. Great. He's the devil. Awesome. It's, it's no one second guessed having a rat as the mascot for your restaurant. Yeah, Not a mouse. <laughs> it's a rat. Yeah, it's a wrap. So any, so back to the Plouchet brothers. Um, when they arrived, Doucette introduced himself to the Plouchet family, including the boys' aunts, uncles, and their father Gary. He was charming and almost immediately gained their trust. June and Gary Plouchet genuinely liked Jeff Doucette and welcomed them and welcomed him into their home on countless occasions. Doucette inserted himself into the Plouchet family home and would come over for dinner and to play with the children. Shortly, Yeah, it's weird. weird. He's 24. Yeah, it's like if they had like a hot older sister, it'd be like, that makes sense. But like, it's just weird to, I don't know. Like, I imagine me teaching and like, there are certain things, like if there was an emergency, it'd be different if it was like, oh my gosh, of course I'll take care of the kids. You have to like go to the hospital or something. Like, but there's not a time where I could be like, hey, let me just drive them home from, like, and I'll just chill with that. Like, it's just... Yeah, it is. It's very weird. But I think they saw him as kind of like, oh, he doesn't have any family. He doesn't really have friends. because all He just lives in the back of that poor karate Exactly. So, like, let's have him be kind of like an older brother. A friendless older brother. Yes. (laughs) Not creepy. (laughs) Um, But shortly after Doucette came into their lives, Gary and June separated. 
Jody believes that his father's drinking habits were a large contributing factor to the separation, and Gary began living elsewhere while June stayed in the family home with the children. Though Gary was still heavily involved in the kids' lives, June, being a semi-single parent, welcomed Doucette's help and grew to trust him. He often drove all three Plowshay boys home from karate practices and would sometimes take them to the mall and give them spending money. However, June and Gary had no idea that Doucette had been grooming and abusing Jody for months while they weren't around. Of course he had. Yes, it's in hindsight, it's very obvious. Jody remembers when the abuse first began. Doucette would take some of the boys driving around the neighborhood, which is like, don't take little kids driving. He would control the pedals and let the boys steer while sitting on his lap. That's not good. No. Jody recalls steering the car on one occasion when Doucette slowly placed his hand in Jody's lap. He repeatedly placed his hand in the 10-year-old's lap and then removed his hands. Doucette, Yeah. Doucette would sometimes send the other kids down the street to a convenience store so that he could work with Jody, quote, one-on-one in the back room. Mm-mm. According where your to- bed is? <laughs> yes, where his bed is. <laughs> According to Jody, Doucette did not try to convince him to perform sexual acts on Doucette, but instead would tell Jody that he was going to perform sexual acts on the boy. He is 10 um, years old. Yes, he's 10 years old. And I mean, I don't want to say what, because I listened to an interview with Jody and he says like exact quotes of what Jeff Doucette would say to him. And they're very vulgar, but they yeah. are just... It's like informative. It's like, I'm going to do this. Not a question, nothing like that. Doucette became more overt in his behavior towards Jody, and over the course of about a year, went from touching him inappropriately to performing oral sex on him to raping him up to twice a day. The sexual abuse took place at the karate school and at Jody's own home. Jody and his brothers joined the fighting team and began going on overnight trips with Doucette. On one occasion, the team was competing in Houston, Texas. The Plowshay boys had an uncle who lived there, and their mother arranged for them to stay with him instead of at the hotel with the rest of the team. When Doucette found out that Jody wasn't going to be staying under the same roof as him, he became visibly enraged. Jody's uncle found this behavior extremely odd and disturbing and told Jody's parents about the incident, but they insisted that Doucette was a close family friend and didn't have any malicious intentions towards their kids. Yeah, okay. The boy's uncle told Gary, the father, that he thought the relationship between Doucette and Jody was inappropriate. But uh, neither yeah. yeah, but neither of Jody's parents believed him. This is because so this is like a common thing with people who groom children but become close to their families too. He's grooming everyone. He is setting up everyone to look the other way and not realize what's happening. It's not all at once. It's not like met the kid and then raped him. It's like years and years so that they don't even think it's weird when they're alone together for multiple hours. Yes, it's extremely manipulative. So Doucette began joining the family for weekend dinners, which included aunts and uncles, and he quickly became acquainted with Jody's relatives. Jody recalled one instance when the family was getting ready to go to dinner at a family member's home. Doucette had been hanging out at their house, and Gary went to drop him off at the karate studio where he was living. And the Plowshays had barely made it down the street when Gary began tearing up and turned around. He told Jody that he felt so bad that Doucette was alone that he had decided to double back and take him to dinner. Oh, my God. But he took him back to their house, let him shower and get dressed and then he took him to shower dinner. At the, at I the don't think karate so. Studio. I do not. I would doubt it. Just those little ones for little kids that are like really low to the ground. <laughs> the tiny shower. Yeah, he's just, just crouching. Like yeah. Doucette became so ingrained in the Plowshay children's lives that Gary became a bit paranoid, but not about his relationship with Jody. Until this point, Gary and Doucette had a friendly relationship. They would take the kids out for meals together, and Gary often traveled with Doucette when the kids participated in tournaments. The two men became friends through these experiences. When Gary left the home and Doucette began hanging around more, a wedge grew between them. Now, he was convinced that June was having an affair with Doucette and spread this rumor around town. Oh, my God. 
In retaliation, Doucette actually called into Gary's work and claimed that Gary had been drinking on the job and tried to have him fired. Doucette wanted Gary out of the picture, but not because he wanted to date June. The only person Doucette was interested in was Jody. He maintained relationships with the rest of the family simply to have unlimited access to the boy. On February 19, 1984, Jeff Doucette arrived at the Plowshay home and asked June if Jody could run some errands with him. June, Why? That's not something a little boy needs to be doing. I know. Right? He's 10. Like, I guess he could carry a bag or two, but, like, what are we doing? It's not fun. Yeah. He's like, I just like the company. <laughs> um, a little boy. Yes. Which, like, no, no one does. June agreed, and Jody and Doucette left in Doucette's car. Jody did not return home that night. Accounts vary about what took place in the next four days following the abduction. Some say that June called her brother, the one who worked at the sheriff's department, and told him that Jody was missing. Another version claims that June drove around Baton Rouge and Doucette's hometown nearby to search for them before alerting authorities. The strangest claim is that June did nothing for four whole days and trusted that Doucette would return Jody eventually. But these are all claims? There's no way to prove this? We don't know which version happened. Wouldn't um, you think if she made a police report, there would be a report? But she just called her family member that worked at the sheriff's department. Yeah, but you would think if you're, like, if I worked at the sheriff's department and you called me and was like, my child's missing, I would then make a report. Right? So I don't know. Yeah. I think she probably drove around looking for yeah, them. And I then, so yeah, I think that's the most likely. Either way, though, on February 23rd, Gary Plouchet was alerted that his son was gone. So four days later. Awesome. Yeah, great. Oh, hey, by the way, you're picking up the kids. You're going to be missing one. Yeah, you're so one you know. down. And that's normal. That's fine. So local police handed the case to the FBI who began monitoring all incoming calls to the Plowshay family home. No attempts to trace Doucette were successful until March 1st, when Doucette called the Plowshays. He spoke to June and allegedly demanded that she bring Jody's siblings to meet him in New York, or she would never see Jody again. The FBI successfully traced that phone call to a budget motel in Anaheim, California. Hmm. Jeff Doucette had apparently gotten himself into some financial trouble. He owed someone in Baton Rouge $15,000 and decided, yeah. All that karate (laughs) Yes, it's living, you know, he doesn't have to pay rent yet. He owes so much money. Yeah. So he decided that he had to get out of town, but he wasn't about to leave without his victim. He took Jody on a 1,600-mile journey from Baton Rouge, Louisiana to California. They're going to Disney. They are. Um, he yeah, immediately are. he had immediately taken Jody to Texas, where they boarded a bus from Port Arthur to Los Angeles. They crossed multiple states by both car and bus. Doucette shaved off his beard and dyed Jody's naturally light blonde hair black. Doucette took Jody to Disneyland, confident that their new appearances would shield them, even if news of the kidnapping had gotten from Louisiana to California. When Doucette was apprehended 10 days after first taking off with Jody, Jody was taken to a local hospital to have a rape kit performed. When police asked Jody if he had been hurt by Doucette, Jody denied that Doucette had done anything to him, likely out of a sense of shame. Yeah, probably. Jody was returned to his family in Louisiana, while Jeff Doucette was taken into custody and was prepared to be extradited back to Louisiana. In between when Jody came home and when Doucette was transported to Baton Rouge, the rape kit results came back. There was biological evidence that Doucette had been raping Jody. According to Jody, his father Gary was extremely disturbed by the revelation that Doucette had been sexually abusing his son. This, coupled with all of the harassment he had endured because of Doucette, left Gary stewing in his anger and hatred for about a week. Then, he overheard a conversation while having lunch at a local restaurant on March 16th. The restaurant was frequented by local journalists and employees of the news station, which was located just down the road. One of the news directors was also having lunch there, and Gary overheard him talking about Jeff Doucette's impending arrival. Gary was being kept in the dark about Doucette's whereabouts because he had told police officers that if he saw Doucette, he would kill him. 
Mm. And they were just like, sure, Gary, that's fine. However, Gary was able to find out from the news director that Doucette was scheduled to land at Baton Rouge Airport that night. When Jeff Doucette was taken off of the plane in handcuffs, WBRZ-TV News was waiting to film him for the late night news. Doucette oh, dressed... No. <laughs> yeah. Something bad's gonna happen. <laughs> yes, that's the point of our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we should change it. Something oh, no. bad's gonna Something happen. Bad's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. Doucette, dressed in a burnt orange long sleeve shirt and sporting a smug grin on his face, was escorted by a police officer through the terminal. A cameraman captured footage of this walk. As Doucette came closer to the camera, he passed a section of payphones on his right hand side. Gary Plouchet lightly disguised <gasps> in a baseball cap. You know Sorry, this? I've seen this YouTube video. Yes. I watched a bunch of like, it was like mm-hmm. in a list of like 10 horrible things caught on camera. Yes, but it's it is still up there. Um, yeah. So Gary was waiting for him. And as Doucette passed by the camera, Gary pulled out a gun and shot Doucette, who was looking ahead and hadn't even taken notice of him. The bullet struck Doucette just above the right ear, and Gary immediately threw down his weapon and was tackled by a police officer, who was recorded yelling, quote, Gary, why? Why, Gary? <laughs> and like, But it's like this thick Louisiana accent, so it sounds like this. Gary, why? Why, Gary? <laughs> you can hear it. <laughs> and it's just, it like almost sounds like it's a, it's scripted because yeah. it's so just like choppy. Like a bad actor. It's like the Lifetime movie of this. What? Exactly. Wah, Gary, Wah. Wah, Gary. Yeah. The officer who was guarding Doucette then rushed the incapacitated man on the ground and muttered to himself, God damn it. Doucette was filmed with a pool of dark red blood around his head as his defeated escort tells another officer, call the sheriff's office. Doucette died the next day at the hospital. The interactions after the shooting happens on the, the video are video, yeah. are so interesting. And apparently, you can't really hear it, but apparently Gary told the officer who had him pinned against the phone booth, if it was your son, you would have done the same thing. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, the footage aired just a half hour later on the oh. news. They literally aired the footage. Awesome. Jody Plouchet had gone to bed and didn't find out until the next morning that his father had fatally shot his abuser. Jody reported having mixed emotions about Doucette's death. He said of Doucette, quote, he was like your best friend, except that he had this one little problem that you wish he would just quit. Gary Plouchet was charged with second degree murder. But as news of the murder spread, the public turned largely in favor of the killer. Parents related to Gary, and many reported that they probably would have done the same thing he did. Gary Plouchet pled no contest to manslaughter and was sentenced to a seven-year suspended sentence with five years probation and 300 hours of community service. And some might argue that he had already done his community service. (laughs) Yeah, but he has to do 300 hours, so... Yeah, true. I mean... He's still got another, like, 200 and, you know... Something like that. Something like that. <laughs> um, he had completed his community service by 1989. So, basically, they're like, listen, suspended sentence. Like, you're not going yeah. to jail for this. We can't do nothing, but... We're we gonna do, do as nothing, close as we can. So, yeah. You know, help the community a little bit. That'll be good for them. And, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, be well, on probation. Which is fucking crazy if you think about it yeah. <laughs> yeah psychologists have examined the case and one edward p uzi came to the conclusion that gary did not know the difference between right and wrong at the time of the shooting uzi viewed Doucette's manipulation as a key factor in the upending of the plowshay family and the eventual consequences Judge Frank Saya took these findings into consideration and saw no benefit in sending Gary to prison. His clean criminal record only reinforced the idea that Gary Plouchet was not a risk to the community. Gary once applied for a pardon, which would have allowed him to carry guns again. He told the court that he had no intention of carrying a concealed weapon, but just wanted to take his son's hunting, not for pedophiles. <laughs> Gary, Gary suffered a stroke in 2011 and spent the remaining three years of his life in a nursing home, where he died after suffering a second stroke at the age of 68. Jody Plouchet was able to slowly recover from the abuse inflicted on him by Jeff Doucette. 
He recalls walking with his father one day when a man who resembled Doucette passed by. Jody started shaking and told his father, quote, wow, I really thought it was him. Gary replied, I knew it wasn't, <laughs> which I love. Yeah. June Plouchet defended her husband's actions. When asked if what Gary did was right, she replied, quote, are you kidding? Do you know how many kids weren't molested because he's no longer on this earth? <laughs> she does. Jody is now a sexual assault counselor and has become an advocate for child sex abuse awareness. He's spoken at conferences on molestation and sexual abuse and actively fights the incorrect assumption that the greatest danger of sexual abuse of children is posed by strangers. The legacy of Gary Plouchet's actions live on even decades after the murder of Jeff Doucette. Jody Plouchet has built his career around helping others who share his experiences. Although Jody has come to terms with his father's actions and the abuse inflicted on him, he still sometimes wishes that his father's actions would take a backseat to his own work. Plouchet told U.S. News, quote, I'll post a cooking video on YouTube and someone will comment, your dad's a hero. They won't comment, <laughs> that gumbo looks great. They'll just be like, your dad's a hero. <laughs> he just wants his gumbo recognition. God damn it. <laughs> the video of Doucette's murder was included in the film Bowling for Columbine and is still readily available today on YouTube. And that's the revenge killing committed by Gary Plouchet. That's insane. I mean, also Isn't that it? they had it on video and then they kept it. Like, they're just like, yeah, we'll keep that up. Yeah. That's Isn't a that a wild story? That is a wild story. And it could have ended so much worse. Yeah. Also, it's crazy now, too, to think, like, imagine having someone in your life. Like, it's not one act, right? It's like, mm -hmm. for so long, so all of those good memories you had with him are now all tainted. Like, they were tainted for him to begin with. But, I mean, like, now in your mind, like, imagine thinking back to your childhood and having that huge... Well, yeah, it completely upends your entire happy Life. childhood that you yeah. had. It's crazy. And like he said, he was he's like your best friend, except for... So when he wasn't doing that one thing... Yeah. They were good memories. And then he did the one thing. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. very weird. There was and another like, statement... Yeah. There was another statement from Jody where he said that he didn't want Jeff Doucette to die. He just wanted him to stop. Yeah. And that's so... It pinpoints the core feeling mm -hmm. that Jody had towards... Jeff Doucette, right. where it was like, he's abusing me, but I get all these other benefits. Like, I feel like, like someone's it'd be there perfect if he yeah. wasn't abusing me. Exactly. Like, it's the whole grooming thing. It's just crazy. Because you think of pedophiles as like these crazy, gross, like, oh, look at that guy. But like, it could also just be like this seemingly amazing person who, when he's not doing the one thing that makes him a pedophile, is a a great like role model and person for your kids yeah he is a pedophile you know what i mean like exactly that it could be and you also wouldn't expect it because he's a 24 year old good looking dude mm -hmm. and it he's makes got a sense. whole life ahead of him he's a karate master yeah right Living in the back of a karate studio he, <laughs> he can does. only go up Exactly. He has got it made. But it's also really, really sad because Jody, like he said, it was like, he does this one thing I really hate, but he's my best friend. Right. But to Jeff Doucette, you're just his victim. Yeah. You're the Which only is so reason sad. he does. The only reason he does any of that good stuff is, is to abuse you. Thing. Yeah, exactly. He, it's he's just doing it all so he can abuse you. And in his mind, it's almost like you had a friend who smoked or drink and you're like i love them every time they're not smoking or drinking or whatever you know yeah. what I mean? the only reason they're being nice to you is so they can abuse you it's such a mind fuck yeah and it's very similar to what victims of domestic violence go through too yeah, yeah because it's, it's like, like we love each other we have this great relationship until they lash out at right. me when they're not angry they're mm -hmm. the best husband or wife or partner in the world yeah it's so this... you stay with them because you know 90% of the time, it's just, and then it gets less and less, 80% of the time, 50% yeah. of the time. Mm -hmm. Because all the good things are just to mitigate how horrible the right. abuse is. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope yeah. yours is a little lighter. <laughs> In mine, the kids die, so probably not. Yeah. Okay. For my story, for one, I don't know how to say the main guy's name. 
I think his name is. It's got an X in it. Is the thing. It's an Xang, A N X I A N G. That's his name. His last name is Do D U. So for the rest of the time, I'm going to reference him as Do. Okay, that makes sense. So, but this is the story about the Ding family. Mm-hmm. So the Ding family was made up of Professor Jifeng Ding. He was called Jeff, but his name is Jifeng. <laughs> his wife Helen Chu and their two daughters Zing. What does an X mean? I think it's a Ch Ching. Her name was Ching. Yeah. I can't imagine it was. <laughs> I've never heard an X make an, a, a Ch sound. I, I have in, in Chinese. I thought it made like a Z, like xylophone. Here, I'm looking it up. Well, it's, oh, it's, it's X. It's Xing. Xing. Okay. Yeah. So they had two daughters. Okay. Xing, who was 18, mm-hmm. and Alice, who was 12. Okay. Um, <laughs> one gets the American name. Well, one, that's just like the dad and mom. The dad's name is Jifeng, and the mom's name is Helen. Okay. <laughs> so, so Alex, uh, Alice and Shing were talented musicians, and Shing had excelled in school. She had, like, a lot of A's. She was on honor roll. She did honors chemistry. So they were all bright. It was a bright family. And the daughter, Shing, had already been accepted into the University of Nottingham. She was going to study medicine. They were said to be a very well-liked family, and they were of Chinese descent. I believe, it doesn't explicitly say this anywhere, but I'm pretty sure that the father and mother were from born in China. Okay. But they were living in Britain at the time. And Du, the man I mentioned earlier, who I cannot pronounce his first name, they had moved over together in 1999, and they had originally started, or in the early 90s, and had originally started a business together. It was like a Chinese medicine herbal okay. business. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 2011, the Ding family was living in Wooten, England, and since 1999, Helen and Jeff had been engaged in a 10-year legal dispute with Du after their partnership had failed. So after the business failed. Mm-hmm. Du faced a legal bill of around 88,000 euros, which is just over $97,000 if he ended up losing the case. And mm. Du had actually lost a number of times. And in 2011, he finally lost his last appeal in the courts. So I don't know if it's because this is like kind of a recent story or if it's just kind of a smaller story, but I couldn't find what this dispute was. Was about. I was going to ask. I think from what I can like piece together from different articles, it sounds like this do guy was the like front end manager and the dings were like more of the back. What do they call it? Like they were funding things, but they weren't really oh, in the everyday business. Were, kind of thing. were they like the owners or investors? Well, the, or... the the do's and the dings owned the business together, but it sounded like do was there like every day doing stuff, and mm-hmm. the dings were kind of more backhand. Okay, like they weren't there every day. They weren't, you know. And so I think the that this like the ninety seven thousand dollars was the cost of like just ending the business kind of thing Mm -hmm. like you know all the products and stuff that were Mm -hmm. in there i'm not really sure but it seems like basically the dings had like been paying their end of the deal and the dues had not because the business was doing bad and so that was just like the leftover like but the battle was really heated because the dings had blamed due for the the closing of the business saying that he wasn't a good business partner and due had been like no you're not there every day you're not helping the business this is all your fault you did this to me Mm -hmm. so um so it was really heated and cameras weren't allowed in those not that cameras normally are for court cases like that but yeah there was a few witnesses who like afterwards actually spoke out and were like that case was fucking crazy like <laughs> yeah they were yelling at each other in different languages and imagine being the judge the british judge who's like what's happening like they were screaming yeah. at each other in chinese <laughs> like in the middle of a court case <laughs> yeah and everyone's the court reporter doesn't know what to type yeah it's like uh, like <laughs> yeah, i don't know <laughs> yeah so um on April 28, 2011, Dew was served with a court order preventing him from disposing of his assets 
which is what he was furious about. So $97,000 had to be paid and he didn't have the money. So instead of him selling, I guess, the assets from the store or like selling his part of the store or whatever, like getting money from it, all that money basically just had to go to the dings. Yeah. And he was furious. He was like, no, that's my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, On the early morning of April 29th, 2011 so the day after this all happened mm-hmm. he ordered a train from coventry to birmingham he was carrying his passport a little bit of cash and a knife mm-hmm. so bad also- combination <laughs> yeah it's never great um he also left his family a farewell note although i don't know what the note said exactly but it didn't sound like a suicide note uh-huh it sounded like i'll see you later i'm gonna go get some breakfast like kind of okay like Like casual, kind of. Yeah, just like, hey, I love you all. I'll be back in a little bit. Peace out, Girl Scout. Mm -hmm. Um, So he boards the train. He then, in Birmingham, boards another train and travels to Northampton. And from Northampton, he travels into Wooten by bus. So it was, like, very complicated for him to be in Wooten. It's not like he showed up there and then, like, remembered the dings lived there and got so angry. He, like, he had a plan. Mm Mm-hmm. He arrived in the town of Wooten at 1.35 p.m. The long trip gave him plenty of time to plan and think about what he was doing. Mm -hmm. So that afternoon, a heartbreaking 999 call comes in from the house. It's from the couple's young daughter, Alice. She Mm. was calling from the upstairs bedroom, but it consisted of mostly cries and screams from multiple different people, including a man. Oh, no. The 999 operator said it was chaotic and hard to understand, but it was quite clear that the home, like, people in the home were in trouble. Like, Mm -hmm. she was, the 999 operator was like, it wasn't a prank, it wasn't a hoax, like, clearly something's happening. Yeah. So, the 999 operator traces the home to the Ding's neighborhood, but can't pinpoint what house it was coming from. Mm Mm-hmm. And at 3.30, the police are notified, because I think the call came in at, like, 3.20 or something. So, you know, only it took about 10 minutes to find out where this call was coming from. Mm-hmm. And the police drive to the neighborhood, but when they see that nothing is wrong, like, out in the neighborhood, they leave. They don't do any wellness checks on any oh, doors. God. They don't knock on any doors. They don't make any phone calls. They just leave. They're like, oh, must have been a prank. If it's not right in the middle of the street, yeah. then there's nothing like, to do. what were they expecting to see? Waves yeah. of blood? Like, I don't <laughs> understand. Later, the complaints division in an interview simply says, yeah, the call was mishandled. Mm. That's all they say about it. <laughs> They're okay. like, yeah, we did it. Whatever. Well, you could have saved people's lives, but you didn't. But that's fine. Yeah. So um, while the police were just driving around doing whatever they wanted to do, Dew was massacring the dings. Um <sighs> All four had been stabbed through the heart and lungs. All of them had been stabbed a bunch of times. The father had was like, he looked like he got attacked first, kind of. He was more downstairs, like kind of by the foot of the steps. And it, it looked like they were all just hanging out, having an afternoon. Dude comes to the door, attacks. And so the mom runs upstairs to where the kids are. Yeah. And so the rest of the bodies are found upstairs. Their daughter, Alice, was stabbed 15 times. Oh, my gosh. And she was found on the bed, like, under the covers almost. And mm-hmm. um, how did we pronounce the other girl's name? Uh, Shing. Shing. Oh, what a horrible time to forget. Okay. But- um, Shing was found, uh, and she was also stabbed, like, 15 or 16 times. And she was found on the bedroom floor, still in her prayer position. She had gotten to the ground and started praying. Oh, my gosh. So, Dew's fingerprints and other forensic evidence littered the bloody crime scene. Following the massacre, Dew washed the knife off and actually left the knife in the Ding sink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he stole the Ding's Vauxhall Corsa, which is a car they do not make in America. Oh, so I, okay. I was like, what like. is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this was around 9 p.m., so had the police checked... The houses, they would have found him. Like, yeah. Also, the the one who was praying, um, Shing, they think the coroner thinks that she was definitely still alive when the police were yeah. in the neighborhood. Ugh. So he steals the car at 9 p.m. He stops at a service like station, like a gas station. Mm-hmm. And he buys a map of Northampton or yeah, Northamptonshire and a banana milkshake. Oh, 
Wow. What a lunatic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it looks like he actually had plans to kill someone else, a, a former business associate named oh, wow. Paul Delaney. But luckily he wasn't home. So it looks like Dew maybe like sat at the house for an hour or two. And mm-hmm. then when Paul just wasn't coming home, he was like, well, I have to get out of here. So he left. Yeah. Luckily, the next day on April 30th, Dew's wife files a missing persons report unaware that the massacre has taken place. So she thinks she's worried about her husband. She's like, something's happened to him. Yeah. The same day, the police go to the Dink's home and it's hard to tell if there are like differing reports. Some people say they finally, like someone found out that they didn't check home. So they were sat back. Others say that when Dew's missing person report popped up on like their system, they were Mm -hmm. like, oh, they just had this crazy court case let's go notify the things because they're in danger yeah but but the police knock on the door no one answers and they just leave Ugh. they don't check inside they don't call like they just don't yeah do they just don't do anything That's... yeah the same day do enters london and somehow because there's cctv everywhere his license plate isn't noticed on any cameras so when they finally do realize that the dings are murdered and they're looking for him that puts hours and hours and hours of delays because they can't find, like, they don't know he's in London because his the license plate is never seen. So mm-hmm. he could literally be anywhere. He then uses the $66 and, and his own passport to buy a ticket to Paris. Uh. So on May 1st, a neighbor of the Dings is worried about them and uses her spare key and finds the body. Shing is still in the prayer pose and the mm-hmm. phone is on the ground next to her. Ugh. So it looks like she was calling, he was attacking, and she just and, Yeah. And On May 4th, Dew is named as the chief suspect by the police department. Mm-hmm. But they believe he is, quote, off the radar and could be anywhere in the UK. <laughs> However, Dew has made his way to Morocco at this point. Oh, my gosh. And he's living in Morocco for months. Yeah. Um. When he first gets to Morocco, he's actually arrested on suspicion of being an illegal immigrant. But he's released after he gives the the cops, like, a detailed lie. Mm-hmm. Like, he just lies his way out of it. Oh, my gosh. Finally, on July 7th, the UK's most wanted man is arrested after his boss recognizes him in a wanted photo. Uh- Imagine seeing that. It's, like, literally the most wanted photo, like... Yeah, and it's like, I just hired and you're this like, dude. Huh, he looks like the guy I hired. Yeah. The detective chief inspector who led the investigation said Dew had successfully ev- evaded their detection for months. He says, quote, that's why I say he was the man with the plan. He didn't hit any radar, adding it had been one of the biggest and worst cases in terms of loss of life, the oh nature of the killing and the number of challenges. Mm-hmm. So the judge, Mr. Justice Flocks, which is a, mm-hmm. kind of a cool name, but um, Flocks. <laughs> yeah. Well, Justice, you know, he's a judge and his name is. Yeah. Um, oh, is that his first name? Yeah. Oh, I thought that was his title, like Justice Flocks, you know, no, like no, no, that's Judge his... Flocks. Yeah. That's uh, his first name. Isn't that's cool? amazing. So, Do gets found guilty of four counts of murder. And mm-hmm. the judge is like, Do, do you have anything? Like, there must, you must have something in you that wants to explain. Like, why you did all this or whatever. Yeah. And he simply nods. Like, he says no. Mm. And he, like, shrugs. Dew's whole defense is that, for one, the business closed because of ding, the dings. And he happened to be in that town. And he got so enraged that he couldn't control himself. And he, he breaks into the home to yell at them to, like you know fight and yeah. they he says they start attacking him and so he grabs the knife that he just happened to have <laughs> yeah he already had out and starts stabbing him even though three of them are found upstairs and one's found downstairs so if anything you would just kill the man and then run away yeah like even if the digs were attacking clearly three of them were not so you oh would my just gosh. kill the one then yeah like, and two but, and two of them are children two of them are children yeah. under the age so the judge also pays tribute to the members of Helen Dink's family who had traveled from China to come for the court case and also helped identify the bodies. Yeah. Um, Liao Chu 
which is Helen's father, mm-hmm. had sat in the back of the courtroom every day of the trial, listening to proceedings through a translator. He says his daughter had been a good mother, a good wife, and she taught the two girls very well and said that hearing the evidence in the court had been like a knife to the body over and over. Many people since then have come out to speak about how amazing the dings had been. Mm -hmm. One of their neighbors, not the one who had found the the bodies, but a different one had said, the Ding family were honest, hardworking, and well-liked people. It's a tragedy that their lives were cut short this way. And our thoughts and condolences are with their families and friends in an interview. And when the media asked a family member of Helen, like, what would you say if you could talk to the the man who did this? He said, I would ask, do, why? Why did you do this? How could you be so cruel? Mm. And that's it. That's the whole story. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) How awful. Yeah. It's just downhill. There's no positives in that. No. Story. Oh my I was hoping yours would be a little little nope. brighter, but no. It's just downhill. Everyone's dead. The the fact that it was really crazy when I found the article that was like, oh, she was definitely alive when the police were there. Like yeah. imagine too, and apparently the cops like came like they came with their sirens and everything. Yeah. So imagine hearing that, being alive, being like, Oh, I'm gonna be saved. And then, and then no, they no just don't one come in. Coming. Yeah. yeah. And so he's still imprisoned, right? Yeah. He's he's forever. Okay. Yeah. Because he has a minimum of 40 years. Yeah. And well, yeah, the way they do it, I guess, is like parole after 25, 30, right? They don't have like um, life in prison, but they can re up his. Like, he's indefinitely, like, they can re-up it as many times as that need to if they okay. still feel like he's a danger. To society, yeah. Okay. So, I, I, I think I read 35 years. Mm-hmm. 25 might be right, but it might be 35 years. Every 35 years, he goes and, like, to the and, courts. Yeah, for and a could be like, no, I should get out, or no, like, and they can choose to keep him in still or not. Yeah, okay. Years. So, I don't think he's ever getting out mm-hmm. because he killed two bright young children yeah their parents for no reason Mm -hmm. except for like there was literally no reason to kill them may again maybe the father like he was your business partner so yeah being so mad at him and getting in a fight with him and just like losing it but there's no reason to kill anyone else i mean no especially there is a reason to kill there's not a reason to kill anyone but even in a crazy person's mind you just wanted to take their lives away in revenge like it's purely yeah. revenge like they They're just angry. that yeah so that their family is miserable it's yeah awful. the kids didn't do anything to him it was just no. purely like i want them to hurt yeah you know? i want them all to hurt yeah and 15 times i think the parents were stabbed like over 20 times yeah that's that is some and rage i read in two places that the father had his throat slit but that's mm-hmm. not everywhere so i'm not sure if he also slit the father's throat or not but like over killing this oh family, yeah like yeah to an extreme mm-hmm. absolutely that yeah. is definitely a revenge killing yep it yep. kind of reminds me of remember when i did that japanese family and the yes had a i was gonna say that it reminded me of that and in that case and in this case they there was like a ton of defensive wounds Mm-hmm. So, like on, but obviously they know who did it in this case but on the father's body in this case there were a shit like it looked like he was fighting and like punching him and trying to get him off mm-hmm. and i just imagine like in the japanese case there's a ton of overkill i wonder if it was like a revenge thing like, yeah i'm mad at the mother or the father so well I'm killing everyone. yeah and we talked about that like maybe it was something with that theater company yeah. oh, that and case stuff like, like that i still think about that case like i want to know that case more than i want to know like john benet ramsey yeah like, what the hell happened because that is just so like there are no leads really yeah there's yeah. nothing it's just like mm-hmm. i don't know could be anyone the end yeah <laughs> the and we'll never know well, well <laughs> well was that fun or what it was so much Look, fun you guys asked Such... for this yes what a way to kick off the 20s yeah the roaring um, 20s yep lots of stuff coming up this year mm-hmm. your wedding yep hopefully hopefully yep hopefully well you know I, what i mean I, I forgot my ring one time to work and some girl was like did something already happen oh my god no i just forgot it while i was washing my hair yeah (laughs) yeah that's i don't wear my ring to work 
So people are, sometimes people are like, well, where's your ring? And it's like, I'm not going to risk it doing like painting and shit at work. Yeah, yeah, you paint and stuff at work. Yeah, I'm like, why would I, why would I wear it? It's being left at home. Yeah. Yeah, where it's safe and I can account for it. But I did just get these scrunchies that have Mm. a little zip pocket in them. Ooh, that's So I can just put it in my scrunchie. Yeah. I always wear my hair up. Yeah. But, you know, we get to go through planning together. And you have to tell me, I know you haven't officially asked any wedding parties yet. Yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do that yet. Yeah. Send a letter? I don't know. (laughs) Send a letter. But tell me what you want me to do. Okay? Okay. I will. Yes. Tell me how I can be helpful. I feel like I'm only going to have you and Elise in my wedding party, I think, at this point. You're going to be my maids of honor and you guys can do whatever you want. (laughs) Okay. So we are hell and high horror on everything. Um, We're hell high horror on hell high horror on Twitter. Um, I'm Austin Castelli on everything. I'm Reparata Ann on everything. I forgot my line. Sorry. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Helen High Horror. Thank you again to our patrons who we shouted out at the top of the episode. You can email your scary stories or like, you know, anything you want to say like uh, Sydney did at the beginning of the episode mm-hmm. to Helen High Horror at gmail.com. And we'll see you not next week, but the week after, right? Yeah. Also, sorry this episode late. It's my fault. I had finals. <laughs> That's I fine. I do it all. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine um okay so that's it happy hauntings everyone bye bye everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist fitting into their schedule and of course the cost well better help can solve those problems It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.